This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The year's most memorable interviews and listener calls on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back for 2019 with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to part one of the best of Fight Back 2019 from the year that was. One of the first fightbacks of this past year featured a visit from Toronto's top police officer. Chief Mark Saunders joined Libby Snymer in studio and offered his reassurance that despite a record number of homicides in 2018, Toronto at the beginning of 2019 was still a safe city. We look at different strategies and, and try to figure out what we need to do. Uh, when it comes to gunplay and the crimes that are happening in the city, uh, we have to evolve with the criminal element, and we're seeing a prevalence of more firearms in the city. Um, so uh, our response has to be specific to gun violence reduction. If we look at the gun situation alone, while at the same time looking after business continuity for the uh, numerous calls that we get on a regular daily basis, close to 2 million calls a year, and figure out how we maximize our resources and which is part of the modernization plan. It's not about, uh, you know, the conclusions are the same. You want to reduce crime, but the, the big thing is how we do it. And so in today's environment, utilizing technology, uh, figuring out what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, partnerships with other agencies and entities to figure out what we all need to do collectively to enhance community safety. I'm here to say that um, that's just unlawful policing. Um, has nothing to do with what uh, we should be doing on a day-to-day basis. And so um, looking at different strategies and different tools that are available to us, uh, I think, is the, is the go forward and, and, and uh, the education piece for the public as, as well as for law enforcement to figure out uh, the role that uh, we play whenever we're in communities, especially communities that have uh, um, a lot of uh, gunplay within their areas. We have measuring tools we've never had before to give us objective evidence with respect to workload, with respect to what's happening where and what times of days and trends and patterns. So there's the one angle, but then when we look at today's environment and the objective of, of the modernization plan is to create a model that is going to be sustainable today's to, in today's changing environment. Um, things are moving exponentially. You have to be nimble in any environment. When you look at other industries, not just policing, but other industries, and you see those industries that don't move at the rate of the, the environment, and they collapse. They fail very quickly. Um, I'm hoping that uh, with this modernization plan, it is evergreen, and, and we change uh, with respect to the way the community, the society wants us to change. Uh, the pressures are different. The crimes are different. Uh, um, and so all of these things have to come into play. But more importantly, utilizing to our maximum capacity, what are we training and what resources are we giving frontline police officers? And then saying, what does the public expect those officers to do? And so I'm going to suggest for those violent crimes, people want the police there. That's what they're trained Quickly. to do. Quickly. Yes. And, and so looking at all of the calls that we do on a day-to-day basis, and, and, and we do 2 million a year, and knowing that 40% of those calls are non-emergency calls, there's a lot of red meat in there that we can tackle and not have 
police officers or frontline police officers do that work. There are other ways in which we can approach it, either utilizing our people, different resources or technology, uh, and, and a whole bunch of different things we're putting into play, including the shift scheduling and, and a lot of things that were antiquated that we're moving towards now. And, and um, you know, it's, it's not going to be straight line. It never is when it comes to exponential change, but we are moving in the right direction. When you look at the setup, uh, of how LCBOs are designed is because they know that 99.9% of the people, the customers, consumers that they're dealing with are in fact law-abiding. And, and so that's why the design is that way. There are mechanisms and alternatives which can be done in today's environment where you can still have your alcohol that you want to purchase, but the layout might be different. There may be different mechanisms put in play. I certainly don't want uh, anyone to put themselves in harm's way. Uh, it speaks to a, a much uh, louder message, which is... Um, people that are stealing alcohol um, and are they uh, dependent on alcohol because I know uh, talking to a lot of the frontline officers they're apprehending people that, that have social issues and now you want to bring these people with social issues through a judicial system which is a wrong mechanism for that type of thing what we do is we're more intelligence led and when we look at the violent crimes it's intelligence led we've apprehended more guns than we have in years before and that is because we've been surgical that we have been intelligence led um, when it comes to the community um, they're not seeing any effects of it because we're only going after the criminal element. Communities always have the better solutions. When we work together, we can have sustainable solutions. And it's not just a matter of saying, here, police fix it. It's a matter of, no, this is your neighborhood. This is your environment. This is your business. Let's collectively sit down and figure out what we can do to make things uh, more sustainable and, and more resistant to any of the elements or entities that, that you're going to be up against in today's environment. This station, what it represents, this is the largest and fastest growing demographic in our country. And, and so again, when it talks about policing, this is stuff that we have to identify. This is stuff that we need to collectively work on in order to be successful. Because if we're going to police properly, we have to community, we have to police everybody everybody and create the right equity for everybody. Um, so when it comes to the 65 and older crowd, one of my biggest concerns is not what's on the outside of doors, but we have to look at policing now. More victimization is happening on the inside of doors with digital technology, with defrauding, with all kinds of things. I have to provide the resources and tools necessary to help reduce and eliminate and make apprehensions for that because there are criminal elements and organized elements that are capitalizing, that are exploiting in larger numbers than ever before. That was Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders for an in-studio conversation with Libby Snymer during the first week of January. This is the Best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. If you're a longtime listener to Zoomer Radio, then you know how important cancer research is to both Libby Snymer and me. Libby is a two-time cancer survivor of breast cancer and pancreatic cancer and has advocated for both Princess Margaret Cancer Center and Pancreatic Cancer Canada. I've not had cancer myself, but lost my mom to bladder cancer in 2012 and have been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada for the past five years. 
But we've all been touched by cancer. So we were pleased when this past February 4th on World Cancer Day, new numbers out of the U.S. revealed that cancer death rates had dropped 27% over the past 25 years. Lifestyle changes and early detection have led to lower rates of the four major cancers, lung, breast, prostate, and colorectal. Here in Canada, mortality rates for those diseases have declined 2% a year in the same period. But sadly, melanoma and cancers of the liver, thyroid, uterus, and pancreas are on the rise. On World Cancer Day, Libby spoke with the research director at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, Dr. Aaron Schimmer, who shared the latest information about cancer rates and research. Immune therapy is one of, been one of the big revolutions, I would say, in cancer therapy. And it's really actually originated because of our understanding of how immune cells recognize um, cancer cells of being foreign. And this is work that's actually probably been going on well back to the 70s. But, you know, through the painstaking efforts of many, many scientists over the years have now actually been able to, uh, to move those discoveries into the clinic, into the bedsides, and as you as you noted, uh, we're now able to see immune therapy as a mainstay treatment for many cancers. You know, leukemia being one of those cancers where genetically modified cells are able, when infused into patients with otherwise refractory leukemia, to hone in and specifically kill off those bad leukemic cells, producing remissions in patients who are otherwise not responding to standard therapy. So a ex- very exciting time in immune therapy now. If you had to point to one thing that's happened since the last World Cancer Day that's kind of new and very promising, what would it be? One really exciting um, piece of work coming from, uh, in fact, our institution at the Princess Margaret relates to work by uh, Dr. Daniel uh, DiCarvalo, who's one of our uh, newer scientists, and uh, he's been working on understanding the genomics and genetics of cancer. And so we, we now know that cancer is a genetic disease. No, not a genetic disease that's hereditary, nothing that you get from parents or passed to children. You know, and if one develops a cancer, one shouldn't think that one is going to transmit that directly in the same way you could transmit a cold or a flu to somebody else. Right, they're they're not contagious and they're not hereditary in the majority of cases, but but we know that they're that they occur because generally it's spontaneous mutations that occur in cells that ultimately go on to become cancerous. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Dan- Daniel DiCarvalo has been able to do is actually been able to detect minute amounts of that genetic mutation in the blood. Um, and so you could actually now theoretically be able to take a blood sample and identify a signature of cancer well before it's detectable by other standard means. And so that's something that we may be now seeing pushing into the clinic in the relatively near future in a dramatically new way to think about the diagnosis and monitoring of cancer. What would you pick as the most interesting thing going forward for the next year? Wow, some of the most interesting things, again, there, there, there is, there's so much going uh, forward in the next year. I think that we're going to continue, you know, it, it's in, in an exciting area, it relates to uh, stem cells. And so we, we understand that stem cells are these quiet, dormant cells located in tumors, in blood cancers, but also in solid tumors, and, and that they resist standard chemotherapeutic. And those stem cells ultimately later on can regrow or the cells responsible for relapse disease. And so now we're understanding stem cells in a way that we haven't been able to understand in the past. And there's some newer work being done by uh, at the Princess Margaret by doctors Dick, Wang, and Chen 
looking at developing a genetic signature that can identify the amount of stemness in your tumor and using that to predict, at least in the case of leukemia, potential responses to standard therapies. We're also learning about new ways that one can therapeutically target these stem cells. And so, so by doing so, at least have the opportunity, in theory, to decrease the risk of relapse disease in patients with blood cancers or also theoretically solid tumors. That was Research Director at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, Dr. Aaron Schimmer, in conversation with Libby this past February 4th, World Cancer Day. This is the best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. One of the most prominent stories of the year in Canada was the SNC-Lavalin affair. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was accused by his former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, of pressuring her to go easier on SNC-Lavalin in their corruption case. Trudeau has always maintained he wanted to protect Canadian jobs. Wilson-Raybould suggested Trudeau's behavior was inappropriate. One of the key moments of the SNC-Lavalin affair was in mid-February, when Trudeau's principal secretary, Gerald Butts, resigned, stunning politicians and political observers alike. In a statement, the longtime personal friend of Trudeau acknowledged the accusation that staff in the prime minister's office pressured Wilson-Raybould to go easier on SNC-Lavalin. Butts also insisted that no one in the PMO pressured Wilson-Raybould to offer any type of deal to the Montreal engineering giant. I was in for Libby Snymer and was joined by a panel of political pundits to discuss Gerald Butts' resignation and the SNC-Lavalin controversy to that point. In studio, Mike Van Solen and Ali Salam, and on the phone, Kim Wright and Patrick Gossage. This guy uh, knew Trudeau from McGill days. Uh, they were debaters together, and he really brought Trudeau into politics and is responsible for his, and is very responsible and has a huge role in convincing him to run for the party leadership and guiding him through the party leadership and in really teaching him politics. I mean, don't forget, he really taught Trudeau politics. He was his, he was his mentor, and so he was far more than the usual uh, principal secretary, who is really just an, an advisor on the politics of things. Uh, he was his best friend, and I think he's going to be horridly missed. He, he's not a, a private guy because he's all over, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and he's been quite public for, uh, compared to most uh, principal secretaries who we really don't know. I mean, people didn't know who Jim Coots was, the principal secretary, when I was in the PMO. He never said anything publicly, but Butts, Butts, I'm a, Butts has a big profile, and he, I think he plans to use it to defend his best friend on an ongoing way. We haven't heard the last of him, that's for sure. Kim, uh, your take on the resignation letter. It's quite remarkable to me uh, that they have mismanaged this from the very beginning. Uh, and whether or not Mr. Butts left because uh, he has something that he wants to share with the world, or otherwise, frankly, somebody had to leave because of this. This has just been such a terribly mismanaged from the beginning. And who, uh, you know, if you're if you're not going to have the prime minister leave, certainly the prime minister's uh, chief of staff needs to go. Mike Van Solen in studio with us here on Fight Back. Um, were you surprised by what happened yesterday? 
I was. I was in a, in sort of many respects. I was uh, first. I'm surprised by the nature of the resignation. You know, the conventional wisdom that somebody has to go. But what we missed in this was that someone taking responsibility. Uh, for something that has happened and then leaving. That would be the normal course of events where a prime minister would accept the resignation and, and say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, I learned that my staff, you know, didn't act appropriately with respect to this file and with respect to how we handled the attorney general. The rule of law is the utmost importance. You know, so it was with deep regrets that I accept Jerry's resignation um, and we're going to we're going to do better and et cetera. Move on, move on. Right. Um, but what we had here was uh you know, the, the the idea that maybe he's the scapegoat, except he hasn't uh, accepted responsibility for anything. So no questions are answered, uh, which really just leads me to believe that if you look at what's the strategy of this, I think Jerry, for whatever reason, feels that he would be better placed. Maybe the party believes too, would be better placed to handle whatever a more incoming fire there is going to be, uh, that he's going to be better doing that from a position outside of the party. Ali Salam, how are you thinking about the way the turn of events over the last couple of days, even the last week? I think it's uh, it's it's even more complicated because we're dealing with a a, a sourced allegation in the Globe and Mail that uh, we haven't really heard the details of from from anyone on the record yet. And so having uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould actually speak to the public or speak to this publicly is going to be key in figuring out actually what's gone on here. Um, certainly, uh, certainly Mr. Butt's departure is uh, challenging for the government, uh, no doubt. And it uh, it really creates a you know, uh, it, it, it's answering a question that uh, we're not sure what the entire question is, in fact, uh, with what we've uh, what we've seen thus far in the Globe and Mail and the various comments that the prime minister has made thus far. Kim Wright, go ahead. Yeah, the cumulative effect of this between uh, the missteps the prime minister has made, the missteps his team has made on the on this and other issues. And then you also have uh, some of his uh, sitting MPs who uh, still haven't learned when they need to uh, not say silly things on the Internet, i.e. Adam Vaughn and his whack the premier. All of this most uh, most immediately will uh, show up in what happens in the Burnaby South by-election next Monday, uh, where we expect that Jagmeet Singh will then uh, be in, elected and uh, in the House. You will have a full set of leaders in the House uh, continuing to hammer for the remainder of uh, the what twelve weeks that are left in this legislative cycle before we break for the election. So interesting times, never a dull moment, and I suspect there are more than a few more pennies still to drop. Strategist Mike Van Solen and Kim Wright, along with Ali Salam, senior VP for National Public Relations, and Liberal commentator Patrick Gossage. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. This past March, Canada joined a long list of nations grounding the Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet, the same type of aircraft that was involved in the deadly Ethiopian Airlines crash. Transport Minister Mark Garneau announced until further notice the Boeing 737 would no longer be used for flights or be allowed to fly in Canada's airspace. He said his decision was based on new information pointing to a link between the Ethiopian Airlines incident and the other deadly crash involving the same plane in Indonesia in October of 2018. To discuss Garneau's decision, Libby Snymer was joined by John Lawford, the executive director and general counsel at the Public Interest Advocacy Center, and MP Brian Massey, former air passenger rights advocate. The fact is that these planes um, literally couldn't fly in many places of the world anymore without restrictions or being outright banned. 
In fact, the United States and Canada were outliers in this. So unfortunately, everything seems to be a fight with um, this government um, to get consumers and to get people protected, whether it's the um, Passenger Bill of Rights or whether it's um, you know transportation on rail safety or even in this particular circumstance, uh, the Canadians um, you know who have suffered the the greatest losses here, being the families, friends, and relatives, um, and then the general public, uh, have had to um, voice their concerns extraordinarily uh, sharp uh, to get movement. But the reality is, is that you know the minister claims that satellite imagery gives him new information that he then gave all kinds of disclaimers about that imagery, but. Um, you know, people are uncomfortable with the situation for a lot of good reasons. And, um, you know, the reality is at the end of the day, though, is the plane really can't fly anywhere um, other than the United States and Canada. And so it's just, it's beyond me why everything has to be a fight. Um, this really should have been something to show confidence. And second to that, I, I think that um, the public is unnecessarily having to, again, come forward uh, during hurtful times to get what, you know, they should have been expecting to get is, you know, a cautionary principle with regards to this, especially given the long list of countries that wanted action, took action, and actually didn't have their citizens have to have an uproar to, to get the solution they wanted. Uh, John Lawford, do you agree that this is the result of pressure and not the result of, and I put this in my little air quotes, new information? Well, I'll take the minister at his word that that's why they decided to change their mind this morning, but I won't doubt that Canadians had a pretty good reason for wanting this done far sooner. And it's true, we were a total global outlier. Uh, you know, you had, you had the UK, you had Europe, you had all sorts of places coming to this conclusion much more quickly. And if they did share information, and they do, then it makes you wonder what the standard is in Canada and why it's different. You know, I think consumers can't be told that, you know, we're investigating, you can trust Transport Canada, we're professional, as the minister said a few minutes ago. Because that's not their first concern. Their first concern is, don't play with my life. And that has always been the answer that we've received from Transport Canada when we want uh, things done. They're always like, safety is the most important thing, and that's not negotiable. And, and yet, in this sort of time, it, it looks like it is. They came out and said, hey, it's not because of safety. No, 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 it's because other countries won't let us land there. Yeah, they've they weren't able to go anywhere, so what use were their planes? So, um, But you see, even Sunwing then was towing the line um, between the industry, the ministry in Canada, and the FAA, which is, until the FAA decides that this thing is not flying, we're not going to say nothing about whether it's airworthy or not. And I'm not prejudging whether there, this accident was related to the one in Indonesia or what the, what the problem was, but the public perception, I think this... Unfortunately, the minister was not in tune with it, and people had a you know a, a reasonable concern, and now they're they're stuck, and there will be disruptions. But it's better to have a government that looks like they're on top of it than one that you know seems to come to realization after people have to yell at them. You know, to me again, it's um, uh, it's going to be a lot of attention paid to this, and and I think there should be some good government oversight because it affects the nation's economy. Um, it affects the um, the people of our country to stay in touch with family, friends, loved ones uh, during times of celebration, but also times of sadness uh, for visiting 
uh, relatives who are ill or you know to attend things that aren't the the this you know the best of things and circumstances so all those factors come together that this is a privilege to operate in Canadian airspace and over Canadians homes and businesses and um, to do a service and we want them to be successful we want them to be strong but we want them to be safe first Mr. Lawford do you have anything you'd like to leave us with that you know this is this is a crisis that got big fast and I appreciate that the transport Folks um, want to be careful and, and keep the system running and are thinking about all sorts of considerations. But top line in dealing with consumers, you can't just ignore us. You know, you've got to come to consumers and, and, and have some communication. I didn't see a lot of that on the front end of this. And this is what you get at the end, a lot of confusion and, and backfilling. Libby's conversation this past March with John Lawford from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and passenger rights advocate, NDP MP Brian Massey. This is the best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It made headlines all around the world. The devastating fire at the iconic Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris on April 15th. Parisians stayed up into the early hours, watching in disbelief as the wooden roof of the 850-year-old landmark went up in flames and its spire fell into the blaze. It took some nine hours to put out the fire. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, promised the cathedral would be rebuilt in approximately five years. As for the cause of the fire, there was initial speculation it was linked to a current renovation project, but arson was soon ruled out. Libby spoke with Neil McCarthy, Director of Communications from the Archdiocese of Toronto, and historical architect Philip Evans, a principal at ERA Architects, who offered up his expertise. It's a pretty extensive um, undertaking, uh, certainly, to um, restore and reconstruct a structure such as this, just imagining how long it took in the initial construction and um, the 1840s reconstruction that uh, happened um, probably took about 25 or so years, and this is this is a, this is a pretty significant impact and uh, amount of damage that we're seeing. So it could take many years to come. Do you think there's any possibility that it will be uh, I restored is possibly the wrong word that with something that's completely different and modern, uh, like the pyramid that was added to the Louvre. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um, uh, some liberties had been taken in the 1840s. Uh, certainly the spire had been built uh, a little bit taller than, than it had originally uh, been done. I think what we can all agree is that um, despite the, uh, the, the you know, awful uh, scene that many of us witnessed yesterday, there, there could be, uh, um, there's always a, p- a positive note that could be uh, taken from. I mean, when you think about some of the fires that had played out at Windsor Castle or Glasgow School of Art, there's always a kind of a resurgence and an opportunity about how these buildings have been constructed, what is the opportunity to train youth and actually pass that knowledge of conservation skills, um, regardless of, of depending on material, to a new generation of conservationists and restoration uh, practice practices. So that's a part of our sort of ongoing and evolving um, practice of conservation, and that that's one that it, that is beyond um, uh, the values of the building itself. It's it's something that's um, uh, lives within our with our own culture. So that's um, certainly going to be um, much much uh, much interest to all of us. 
Right now, I would like to bring in Neil McCarthy, who is the Director of Communications with the Archdiocese of Toronto. What is the gut feeling about this at this moment after 24 hours? Well, you know, the the images were heartbreaking yesterday to see this tremendous fire uh, ablaze in this church that is such a spiritual home uh, for Catholics from Paris, first locally, but, you know, tourists around the world, and those who even uh, don't share uh, any faith that come to uh, admire and respect the cathedral. So, it's, I mean, just a, a sad, sad moment. Anytime you see a church on fire, it's quite striking. And, uh, you know, our, our thoughts and prayers are certainly, you know, yesterday we're with the people who are fighting the fire, and thankfully no one was hurt, but um, it's just shocking. Some people say those scenes of people coming to sing the hymns were a little surprising because France is pretty secular these days. Sometimes these kind of events will will bring people to reflect a little bit deeper on their spirituality and to just appreciate in many ways that we do in, in whether it's a building or a loved one or when we experience any type of loss or pain, it causes us to kind of reflect on what's really important. And I think that you know, there, uh, there is a very strong faith community in France. It may not be as large as it once was, but certainly people who are uh, wanting to sustain the faith and felt that, you know, uh, when we don't have answers, we come to pray. And, uh, and last night, they certainly did that in front of uh, Notre Dame. Philip Evans, what would you like to leave us with? The thing that uh, uh, there's been so much uh, support, um, certainly a building that, that uh, uh, though it's been threatened and it's, and it's seen some some pretty extensive damage it's uh it's it's very clear that it's 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 an important building to to many of us across the world and uh uh, i have no doubt it will be uh saved and um uh there for future generations to appreciate okay and neil mccarthy yeah i think it's important to remember that cathedrals are representation of faith in the heart of the world's biggest cities we have that in toronto paris new york all around the world, and it demonstrates the outreach that goes on, uh, people of faith who are motivated to be in the heart of the city where there are challenges, where there's poverty, all those types of things that uh, we want to be walking hand-in-hand with people on. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, people will continue to, uh, to to live their faith, even if they don't have the physical building for a time, but um, we all agree that I think the, the cathedral must continue. Neil McCarthy, Director of Communications from the Archdiocese of Toronto, and historical architect Philip Evans, a principal at ERA Architects on the devastating Notre Dame Cathedral fire, April 15th. This is the best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. This year, there were several deadly shootings at places of worship. On April 27th, a synagogue near San Diego was targeted. A woman was killed and three people were injured, including the rabbi. Some say the attack could have been worse since the gun apparently jammed after the rabbi was shot at. It wasn't long before that, hundreds of Christians were slaughtered in churches in Sri Lanka. And in March, dozens of people were killed in mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand. In order to try to better understand why these types of attacks seem to be happening so frequently, Libby Snymer spoke with security and terrorism expert Ross McLean, along with the Director of Policy and Strategic Communications for the Jewish Federation of Canada, Steve McDonald. 
I think uh, everyone in the Jewish community is uh, is heartbroken and, and horrified at what took place in San Diego County. Uh, security is something that with which our community is very familiar. We have uh, strong protocols and systems in place to protect our institutions, and, and we are a resilient community, but it still uh, shocks and disturbs us to see these sort of uh, anti-Semitic attacks taking place. This is the second time in six months that a, an American synagogue has been targeted for a mass shooting. As you mentioned, miraculously, uh, the shooter's gun jammed, and therefore the loss of life, while, while ter- terrifying as it was, uh, was not what it could have been. And so we know that law enforcement here in Canada are drawing lessons and deployed the necessary resources this weekend to ensure that communities are safe. But the community is, is quite concerned, as you can imagine. Ross McLean? Well, it's, it's horrific. It's another shooting. But in the, in the environment that we have today across North America, it's, it's, we, we're fostering this sort of hate, uh, identity politics, and our universities in particular are rife with these sort of issues. And I think there's going to be more to the background on that if we have some investigation into it, Libby. Okay. Uh, You were saying uh, that you think the shooter in this case may have been radicalized at his university. Well, let's look at this. This is a young man, 19 years old. He's a nursing student, never known to the police before. Uh, apparently the police say with no connections to any white supremacist group. What he does do, though, is he's going to the school, the University of California in San uh, Macron. Now, down down in those universities, we've all heard about the craziness that's going on down there with diversity, political correct speak, uh, snowflakes and everything else. Well, they've got some real issues down there. They've just uh, a little while ago. The whole California State University network was sued for being anti-Semitic because they were actively working against uh, Jews. They were being sued for it in court, Libby. Uh, the course, uh, the case was just coming up, and the and the the university settled out of court for it and admitted that they needed to hire someone to promote Jewish uh, studies and protect Jews and to say that Zionism is part of what is being Jewish. And this is what's being actively fostered on the campuses and this where this is where this young man is from so i think it's reasonable to start looking there for where the radicalization of thinking that uh shooting and killing jews is something that's uh that's 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 reasonable to do steve mcdonald uh, do you agree with that i know that a lot of jewish organizations see big problems on campuses there is anti-semitism on campuses on the other hand, I just read some statistics that say most of the anti-Semitic incidents are perpetrated by neo-Nazi far-right people. Well, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I, I think obviously there is anti-Semitism on campus, and anti-Semitism, generally speaking, is seeing a rise in the Western world. Uh, and and it, it is cropping up on both the far-right and on the far-left and uh, among some, well, many uh, violent Islamist uh, movements as well, and so it is a it is a multidimensional problem. It takes on various it it uh, takes on various ideological traits, um, and what we do see is that historically, whenever you see political polarization and social and economic instability, you see an environment in which anti-Semitism can thrive. And so I, I think that in this case, we do know that he was steeped in white supremacist ideology, according to to the reports that are available and that he claims to have been inspired by the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter as well as the Christchurch uh, mosque shooter. And so I think we have to look at the, the, uh, the fact that online hate is a key component of this. Uh, individuals who are radicalized to commit violence usually are, are fueled and fostered by online propaganda. 
this individual seems to be no exception to that. And so I think it is crucial that we have uh, a national strategy here in Canada to deal with the issue of, of calls for violence and incitement taking place online. Thankfully, the House of Commons Justice Committee is currently studying this issue, and we hope that this will lead to a, a strategy that brings in internet service providers, social media platforms, and others to tackle this issue. I think we have to recognize we have a phenomenal country here in Canada. We've done a pretty good job as a country of navigating polarization, but we're not immune from this. If it can happen in the UK, if it can happen in France and Sweden, uh, we can't be complacent. And therefore, uh, credit to you for giving space to this conversation and for Ross as well for, for sharing his views. That was terrorism and security expert Ross McLean and Steve McDonald, Director of Policy and Strategic Communications for the Jewish Federation of Canada. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer after the synagogue attack near San Diego in April. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the best of Fight Back 2019 on Zoomer Radio. This past spring, the Ford PCs at Queen's Park took to the airwaves and the gas pumps to fight the Trudeau government's carbon tax. They took a lot of flack for this tactic because the ads on TV and the stickers on the gas pumps don't point out that the federal government is offering financial rebates to Ontario taxpayers. Conservative strategist Mike Van Solen joined Libby back in May to talk about the Ford government's strategy. She was also joined by communications expert Robin Sears and MPP and NDP energy and environment critic Peter Tabbins. It's a waste of money. and Most people that I've talked to say, I don't want Doug Ford using my tax dollars, money I need for schools and hospitals, for services. I don't want them wasted on this tax campaign so he can help Andrew Scheer in his federal election coming up this year. Uh, no one, <laughs> no one uh, thinks that this is a good idea because we know that we have real uses for that money. And him using it for political propaganda is just way too outrageous, frankly. It, it's, it's really mind-boggling. Uh, the, the ads are totally inaccurate, unfair. Um, and again, just part of Doug Ford making stuff up. That's just the way he does things. The Liberals um, got rid of the Auditor General's power to strike down these partisan ads, and that was a huge mistake on their part. They they really hurt Ontario when they do that. When they did that, and back in the day, uh, the Conservatives said, "No, no, no! This is terrible. You can't be putting partisan advertising on TV. You can't be using money out of people's taxes to do that." No, you have to stop. For the Liberals, the slogan is, that was then, this is now. And that now seems to be the Conservative slogan, because they've got the power to reverse this. They were really strong when they're in opposition opposing this. And no, they're just going along with what the Liberals did to drag Ontario backwards. And we're paying for it. Literally, it's coming out of our pockets. Well, absolutely. It's $30 million, apparently. Uh, anything you plan to do further on this issue? Well, we're going to continue arguing against this in committee, uh, arguing against this and voting against this when the bills come forward and bringing this up. Uh, right now, the Conservatives have a majority. What they need really is to hear from people in Ontario saying, stop wasting my money. Just stop already and get on with doing what you're elected to do. Look after the things that are vital to us. Let's bring in Robin Sears, who is a principal of Earnscliff Strategy, and Mike Van Solen is also with us. What do you make of this? 
I wonder how much of it is just, um, as it were, hot air in the eyes of most voters. Uh, the the claims in uh, the ad are, you know, on their face false <laughs> and easily uh, proven so. And it, I found the one ad I've seen with the woman with a gas hose in her hand and nickels falling out of it a little bit paternalistic and patronizing, frankly. Um, not a home run, I don't think. Mike Van Solen? I think these are the type of uh, policies that he was elected on. Um, and people can take issue with what his approach to climate change is. Climate change, I believe, to be a very real problem. Um, but I believe there's a lot of different ways to, to get at it. He, uh, I think it's incumbent as well on the federal government to show that to continue to make the case. And I think they've struggled to make the case that the carbon tax is a critical uh, tool in that battle. Um, what people see, and, and if I... If I was on the other side of the table or supporting the the federal government, uh, I think they should be extra vigilant to take away the criticism that this is just a tax grab or a way to expand government. I think they should have been uh, they should be crystal clear in uh, that they're not going to allow it to be a tax grab. That they're going to reduce taxes in other ways to make sure that it's a revenue neutral uh, proposition. But Mike, um, with respect, that's not the point. The point here is the use of taxpayers' money for partisan purposes. It doesn't matter if they're trying to sell chocolates that were had a PC logo on them. It wouldn't make any difference to what is wrong about this. It's not the subject matter. It's the choice of vehicle and the source of funds. And this will cheapen Doug Ford's brand, especially since he came to power, claiming he was going to overwhelm and sweep out the Augean stables, etc., that the liberal corruption left behind. How is this any different? I think he uh, has found himself in a battle with the federal government that is willing to use this tool to advertise uh, its program extensively in a province uh, when he himself has a mandate from Ontarians to fight against this uh, fight against this policy proposal. And he, you, people can take you know get into the merits of each each other's position, but he's fighting fire with fire, and uh, and that's what he was asked by Ontarians to do. And I think any premier who gets a str- uh, the majority that he does, it is their duty then. To, to prosecute and advance their case as best they can. And that, so he's using the tales that are avail- tools that are available to him. And we may not like it, but that's where we find ourselves. And I don't know that uh, this is singularly Doug's, uh, Doug's uh, pro- cross to bear. Strategist Mike Van Solen, communications expert Robin Sears, and NDP MPP Peter Tabbins talking about the anti-carbon tax ads that were launched this past May. This is part one of Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2019. I'm Jane Brown. The final week of May began with good news for Toronto's mayor and city councillors when Premier Doug Ford announced he would cancel retroactive funding cuts to municipalities for public health, child care and ambulance services. These cuts, according to City of Toronto staff, would have added up to nearly $180 million from the 2019 budget, which had already been set. The decision by the Premier came after Mayor John Tory launched an online petition against the cuts and went door-to-door in Toronto PC ridings to talk with residents. Libby Snymer was joined by City Councillor and Budget Committee member Mike Layton and PC MPP Stephen Lecce, who at that time was Parliamentary Secretary to Premier Ford. Our long-standing position, I think, remains true now, as it did yesterday and, and before we made this new announcement this morning, which is the municipal sector and municipal governments have to be part of the solution to find savings. Over 92 cents in the dollar 
that Ontario spends, or essentially all the monies we allocate, go to other levels of government or agencies. Meaning we really don't, con- like we control less than 10 cents to the dollar um, of spending. And so we'll, we're going to reduce our own uh, inefficiencies. We're going to du- reduce duplication. We're going to find savings for the taxpayer within the the monies we control. But an overwhelming majority go to other levels of government. So we believe they have to be part of the solution. And the Premier has been meeting and listening to mayors across uh, the province of Ontario, uh, in Toronto, in Guelph, in Ottawa, having those conversations, and understands that in order to achieve the objective, additional time uh, would be uh, needed in order to save those services locally that matter most to the populations. And so we've been persuaded that a bit more time will still help us achieve the overarching objective, which is saving. Stephen, they've said all along they're willing to find the savings, but what they've said is that they're not consulted enough, not consulted or talked to before the fact. Do you think that the approach might change in terms of consultation? Yeah, I think consultations are are sort of vital when it comes to the rollout of any announcement. And I think what has taken place here is going back to the fall, there were... Uh, discussions, and there were clearly the government has intimated rather, uh, not subtly, that we were going to be looking to the other levels of government, including at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario at that conference in the summer. This is literally perhaps 60 days, 90 days after we were elected. We not so subtly signaled to municipal partners that savings would be, uh, we need to be, that they need to be part of the solution in the context of savings. Obviously, the timing of that, does it apply to the current fiscal year versus future uh, fiscal years? was a variable that wasn't decided. And so we've you know, reformed how we're going to proceed with this because we want to give municipal partners that flexibility that they have needed. They've asked for that, and we've listened. But what we're signaling today with the announcement is we're providing that uh, the flexibility and the time municipalities need to get this right, to protect those services that are vital to the, the, their residents, but also to signal to cities that we're still moving forward with our expectation to them that they have to do more with less. Let's bring in Toronto Councillor Mike Layton, who is a member of the Toronto Budget Committee. Were you surprised that they backed down? The level of heat that the public has been able to turn up on their local MPPs, on the Premier himself, uh, has been significant. And like this didn't happen out of the goodness of the Premier's heart, uh, that they're now backtracking on, on what was a retro, unfair retroactive cut to services that, help, that, that are there to help the most vulnerable. This is because the public turned up the heat. And yes, there were mayors and councillors involved, but for the most part, it was the parents. It was those that depend on these services. It was uh, uh, youth stepping up uh, to, to to fight for services that that will impact them. Uh, so 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 really, I think it's not in the goodness of their heart that they're now reconsidering their position on consultation. And I, it's funny to hear a member of the caucus say consultation is such a great thing. Yet they didn't consult us at all about any of these potential cuts prior to just making the announcement. The one ray of hope that I see in this is that we're able as a province, as a city, to stand up and say enough is enough. You know, I was in Ford's ward, Ford's riding just last Wednesday. We were at a child care center, one of the ones that will lose, uh, lose funding. Their parents will lose subsidies as a result in a community that needs, the parents need to work, but they can't afford the expensive child care bill. And so we were there and we were handing out f- flyers and every one of them, Every one of them signed our petition. There were people stopping in the street saying, you know, I voted for Ford, but enough is enough. Don't take it out on the good people that are just trying to live a life and go back to work when they have kids. Uh, and that, that is, I think, what has made the premier change his mind on this. 
uh, I think that we've made it uh, as uncomfortable as possible for any of his caucus to go out in public uh, without actually really, really feeling some of the pressure that, uh, that, 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 that some of the feeling that, that, that people have around the province about who they've decided to take their, uh, take their attack out on. That was Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton and PC MPP Stephen Lecce, who was Premier Ford's Parliamentary Secretary at the end of May. I'm Jane Brown. And this has been part one of Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2019. We hope you've enjoyed this look back at the first half of the year. Be sure to join me for part two of the year that was on New Year's Day, Wednesday, January 1st, after the noon news. And tomorrow, on Friday, December 27th, you are the star of the show. We've chosen the best calls of 2019 and put them all together in a special Best of Free for All Friday. I hope you'll join me for this special look back at what you had to say during the year that was. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.